Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our Heavenly Father, we just want to pray what we have uh, uh, just prayed and sung together in prayer, that in the power of your Spirit you would indeed speak and you would indeed change us by your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the problem. Uh, Most Christians, me included, are grumpy quite a lot of the time. The problem is, it's not okay to be grumpy. Here's a further problem. Many of us think grumpiness is a relatively minor failing. Uh, We're not afraid to express it in public. Many other sins will keep hidden, but the grumpiness we seem free to express in almost every situation. It's relatively respectable, perhaps even a little endearing, we feel. Maybe it's even funny. Some of you may remember the, uh, the sitcom uh, One Foot in the Grave back in the 1990s. Six whole series of uh, TV shows dedicated to the comedy of grumpiness built around the character of Victor Meldrew and his catchphrase, I don't believe it. Uh, the cry, so he claimed, of the one sane person in a mad world. It's very interesting. More recently, Victor Meldrew has lent his name to a syndrome. According to one admittedly not very uh, scientific study, Victor Meldrew's syndrome is the increasing tendency to grumpiness we all suffer from as we get older. Uh, what's more, as they get older, men are on average four times more grumpy than women. Uh, which, given how, uh, given how grumpy some women can be, is really, really saying something. And uh, apparently this, this grumpiness kicks in at a certain age. Now, we all suffer from it, but it kicks in at a certain age. To quote from the study, our findings suggest that it's all downhill from age 52. So you know who you are. But again, it's not okay to be grumpy. If we've learned anything at all from watching the people of God over the last few weeks, it's this. It's not okay to be grumpy. The grumpiness of the people in the book of Exodus has exposed something deeply wrong in their hearts. It's shown them to be irrationally untrusting, disobedient, and perhaps more than anything else, just plain self-centered. And when we're grumpy, it shows something similarly rotten in our hearts too. So when we get to this part of the book of Exodus, we should be asking, I think, with some desperation, what's the answer to all this grumpiness? Well, we might well find something of an answer in our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 18. It's actually quite a key moment in the book of Exodus. You see the character in verse 1 of our passage. It's on... That's on page 75, beginning of the book, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, we're told about the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses. And that's significant because we first met uh, this character, Jethro, right at the beginning of the story. Uh, back towards, you right, think right back to the beginning of the term in chapters 3 and 4. Mentioning him here again encourages us to bring to mind everything that's happened in between. 
And think about a lot has happened in between. There's been Moses commissioning from the Lord, his return to Egypt, he and his brothers' encounters with Pharaoh. There's been the 10 plagues, the Passover, the exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the sea, and the rescue from the hand of the Egyptians. Uh, All of which has culminated in the last few chapters, this grumbling and grumpiness from the people we've had in chapters 15 through to 17. So by the time we get to chapter 18, we're hoping for something of a resolution to all of that. And in in particular, a resolution to this problem of grumpiness. And in Jethro, I think we'll find it. I think we'll see in the contrast between God's grumpy people and Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, we'll see how God wants us to escape from grumpiness. I hope we're going to see that this is God's purpose for our chapter this morning, uh, to transform grumpy people into godly people, people who truly know the Lord with joy and seek his will. And I think we're going to see that in two parts, corresponding to the two parts of the chapters. First, verses uh, 1 through to 12, by remembering what the Lord has done. Transforming grumpy people, remember, to godly people, by remembering what the Lord has done. And then secondly, uh, the second half of the chapter, verses 13 through to 27, by seeking his wisdom and justice. So then, two parts. Uh, You want to escape from grumpiness? I think we all do. First then, remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. And uh, what we're going to see in these verses is the prompt to remember comes from outside of the situation we've been in. It comes from this character, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He's an outsider. He's a foreigner, but he's also an authority figure. And the Lord graciously speaks into this situation through this outsider. He prompts Moses to recall what the Lord has done. And as the people hear about this encounter, it's going to prompt them to remember what the Lord has done too. And they can then join in with Jethro in his joyful praise. And for us too, it should come as a breath of fresh air, prompting us to remember all that the Lord has done. If we've been wallowing in grumpiness, it shames us. It shows us how we should respond to the Lord. And it encourages us to move on from our grumpiness and to join Jethro in praise to the Lord, who has marvelously delivered his people. So what happens in this first half of the chapter? Well, remember from the last few weeks that the people of God are in a bad place. They've been grumbling repeatedly towards both God and his servant Moses, openly questioning whether the Lord is with them. Uh, Things have, in fact, got so tense that Moses has been in fear of his life. Uh, What's more, the people have been under attack from the Amalekites and have only just survived. But now along comes another foreigner, uh, a Midianite this time. And this could also have been a rather tense encounter, I think, because this is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and his bringing back Moses' wife and his two sons. Now just pause there a moment and imagine yourselves in Moses' shoes at this moment. Not so long ago, you thought the people were going to stone you to death. Your arms are now aching like mad from all your staff-holding duties. And now someone tells you, to top it all, now someone tells you, Your father-in-law is on his way with your wife and sons. Now, we're not told why Moses sent away Zipporah and his sons. Uh, Was it for bad reasons? 
Was it for good reasons, for their safety perhaps? We're not told. Either way, the reunion could have been another very tense moment. But remarkably, it turns out not to be. You'll see in verse 5 that yes, Jethro does want to remind Moses, I am your father-in-law. And yes, he does want to say to Moses, you remember your wife and your two sons. I think Catherine Fields tempted to do this with me sometimes at dinner when I've been working too hard. You remember your children. Um, are they perhaps a little taller than when you last engaged with them? <laughs> but it's very striking here, isn't it? There's a lot of grace here. Jethro's main concern, his main concern seems to be to encourage Moses with the truth about what the Lord has done. Even the names of the sons help with that. And uh, we're reminded right at the beginning of the chapter what they are. Verse 3, there's Gershom, stranger there, reminding Moses of his time as an alien in a foreign land. And now there's uh, Eliezer, God is helped, reminding Moses of how the God of his father saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. Uh, together, those, those two sons right, standing right in front of him tell Moses' story, where he came from and what the Lord has done for him. But it doesn't stop there. Jethro doesn't stop there. He's heard something of what God has done for Moses and his people um, Israel, but he wants to hear more. So after they've warmly greeted one another, verse 7, they go into the tent, verse 8, and Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And then Moses responds with some of the most important and striking words in the whole of the book of Exodus. Let me read from verse 9. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly and then Jethro offers sacrifices and he and Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel enjoy an intimate meal a covenant meal together in the presence of God so given the gloomy time we've had over the last few weeks uh, this stands out as a much happier and much more encouraging story but what's the point of it one of the big things here, what's being emphasized in this chapter? Well, I think several things stand out. The first, I don't know if you've noticed this, is the first is the, the extraordinary number of times we're reminded that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Thirteen times, in fact, across the chapter, we're reminded. You'd, you might have thought that once would be enough, but no, 13 times in one chapter, we're reminded he is Moses' father-in-law. Why is that? Well, I think we conclude it's to make it very clear that Moses relates to him as father-in-law, that is, as someone with authority over him. It it reminds us of some of the interactions Moses had with him earlier in the book, in chapters uh, 3 and 4. Not only, as I was saying earlier, should that bring to mind everything the Lord has done in between, It should also remind us that back in chapter 4, Moses treated Jethro as an authority 
figure. Later in this chapter, in fact, we'll see that Jethro speaks with the authority of the Lord. In other words, how are we supposed to read this? In other words, in the end, this is essentially the Lord himself graciously intervening through Jethro to bring about a response to what he's done, a response we can't manage on our own. We should therefore take what he says very seriously, just as Moses did. The other thing being emphasized here over and over again in what Jethro says is this idea of being saved or or rescued. Uh, Verse 4, we see it. uh, He saved me. Verse 8, the Lord had saved them. Verse 9, he rescued them. Verse 10, he rescued the people. This is the, the reminder, the word that breaks in from outside the situation. This is the big thing the Lord has done. He has saved, rescued, delivered his people from the hand of the Egyptians. The next thing that stands out here is the identity of the person who brings this reminder. This, remember, is Jethro, the Midianite. He's a foreigner. He hasn't personally been delivered from the Egyptians. He hasn't personally seen with his own eyes what the Lord has done, all the the signs and wonders that we've been reading about over recent weeks. He's only heard about it. And yet he's the one who says those amazing words of praise in verses 9 and 10. On the one hand, I guess it's a, it's a reminder of the global scope of what God is doing. His promises of blessing are in the end for the whole world, not just the Israelites, but even this Midianite is included. On the other hand, it's also, it's also very, very humbling. Compare this to how the Israelites have responded to what the Lord has done. And they, they've even seen it, experienced it firsthand. And their response has been grumbling and infighting. Compare this to how we respond to what God has done. Because this is clearly how we should respond. Praise be to the Lord who rescued. This is what we should confess and proclaim. Think back over the term. So the many, many times in Exodus that uh, we've been told that our God is doing what he's doing so that the world may know, we may know, that he alone is the Lord. Well, it's verse 11 that shows us that that purpose has been achieved. This is worthy of great praise. Now I know, says Jethro, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. That confession is a very, very key moment in the book of Exodus, and it should be our confession too. So let's think through how this can, can help us, to help us to praise the Lord and confess his greatness uh, even in our times of grumpiness. And I wonder if it would be worth um, beginning by thinking through what's going on in our hearts when we're grumpy. And I think it all has to do with what we think we deserve. What we think we deserve. When things are hard, we think, I don't deserve this. Or we might look around at other people and think, I deserve better than this. I think what we've seen that we can begin to understand why older men especially are susceptible to grumpiness. Uh, they think, I deserve to be listened to. I deserve to be respected, to have influence. But 
I'm not getting any of those things. Perhaps we're thinking about men who have just retired. They, they used to get those things, perhaps, earlier in their lives, but now they don't. And they look at the younger generation, you know, with no experience, no wisdom, immature, silly, struggling to get out of bed in the morning, struggling to put a grammatically correct sentence together. <laughs> and yet it's those people, those people that are listened to, that have the influence. And with one unified and grumpy voice, the older generation say, I don't believe it. But grumpiness is not just an older man's problem, of course. It seems to be something that we all struggle with. Uh, most of us get grumpy when we're tired, for example. We almost expect to get grumpy when we're tired. I know I do. And since I'm tired quite a lot of the time, that's a lot of grumpiness. Now, you might encourage me to, to just, you know, laugh that off. Don't worry about it. We all get grumpy when we're tired. But I should worry about it, shouldn't I? We're told through the book of Exodus that grumpiness is serious. Serious. And what I, I'm saying when I grumble is effectively something like this. I, I don't deserve to feel this way. I deserve sympathy. I deserve more rest and sleep. I deserve more time to do the things I want to do. That's essentially what I'm saying. And it's not a million miles away from the people of God in Exodus saying that they don't deserve to be thirsty and hungry. They deserve water and food. Now, when you're in the midst of grumbling, it is hard, I think, to have perspective. It's hard to see uh, what you're doing. I know that's true for me. But what's interesting here in, in Exodus 18 is that the, uh, what happens to break the cycle of grumpiness is, is a word from the outside. That's what I, I think we need. I need, too, in that moment of grumpiness, someone to be a Jethro to me and to say, essentially, tell me more about what the Lord has done. Tell me more about what the Lord has done. Now imagine my first reaction to that might be quite hard, quite bristly. Yeah, I know, I know, I know all that, I know all that. But what I then need, what I then need is some patience, someone taking me through it step by step. Now let's look at this carefully. Let's do the comparison. Let's work it through. Let's compare what you think you deserve with what you know you actually deserve. Come on, you're a, you're a Christian. At the, and at the heart of being a Christian means admitting that the only thing you really deserve is death. And let's compare this thing you're grumpy about, whatever it is, tiredness, whatever it is. Let's compare it to what the Lord has done, to what you have because of him. Now that's going to require some care and sensitivity if uh, whatever making someone grumpy is, is especially hard or painful, and we can think of many situations where that might be the case. If, it, if it's just tiredness, it's fairly easy to see how relatively small that is. If it's something very painful, it might be harder to talk about. But it's still a worthwhile thing to do. How can I be sure of that? Well, because what the Lord has done for us is beyond compare. Beyond compare, especially as Christians. He's done much more for us than to rescue us from the hand of the Egyptians. He's rescued us from the jaws of sin and death. 
And in him we have forgiveness, life, hope, purpose, a fresh start every day, a new identity. And think about this for a moment. By not being grumpy, by taking on the suffering and death he didn't deserve, the Lord Jesus has even rescued us from the sin of grumpiness, freeing us to live non-grumpy lives. Now, I'm not at all saying any of this is easy. I'm not at all saying that. Um, So, for example, suppose we are now keen to remember what the Lord has done and to praise him like Jethro here. What next? How, How do we go about living that out? How do we submit to his will and live it out in all the conflicts and complications of life without getting grumpy again? Well, of course, we need more help here. And so did the Israelites in Exodus 18. And this, in fact, is the second way that the Lord works through Jethro to transform grumpy people into godly people. Uh, This is the second half of the chapter, verses 13 through to 27. Having remembered what the Lord has done, says Jethro, now seek his wisdom and justice. Seek his wisdom and justice. Now, we're going to spend much less time on this this morning, but I hope we'll see that what happens in this second half of this chapter does, uh, again, encourage us to move away from grumpiness, but it encourages us to move away from grumpiness and seek the wisdom and justice that the Lord provides. I hope we'll also see in that. We don't ultimately, though, find that in Moses, or in any of these new judges, or in the law they administer. Helpful though that may be, we find it in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom and justice personified. So what does happen in the second half of this chapter? Well, it's the, it's the next day, and it's a long, heavy work day for Moses. Once again, we see Moses' central importance in God's people. They come to him to find God's will and guidance. But once again, we also see his, his weakness. Verse 13, the next day Moses took his seats to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening, As he did before the Amalekites we were seeing last week, Moses is sitting all day and the sitting is exhausting for him. It's not good, says Jethro, it's not good. Verse 18, the work is too heavy for you, you cannot handle it alone. Jethro's advice then is to appoint officials who can multiply this work of judging the people, uh, bringing the will of the Lord to bear on their lives. Uh, This idea actually paves the way for the next part of the book of uh, of Exodus. If these men are to judge, then they need to know the will of God for the people. They need something written down for them. And that's just exactly what they get from the Lord in the next chapters. The Ten Commandments, and then all the statutes and case law they'll need to do this work of judging. And even this advice from Jethro is actually really from the Lord. He says pretty much... As much in verse 23, God commands it, he says. And uh, Moses takes it as, as advice from the Lord. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Okay, then what are we to, to, to make of all this? What are we to make of what happens here? 
Now, people do find it very tempting to take all sorts of practical lessons from this chapter, as if uh, Jethro was some sort of early management consultant. You know, so this is how you should go about delegating tasks among other people. This is whom you should choose to do that work. This is how you can multiply the administration of justice. It's hard to say that's entirely wrong. Some of that practical wisdom is picked up in the, in the New Testament as the, as the apostles talk about appointing godly leaders and multiplying gospel ministry. But I can't help thinking that's not the main point here. That's not the main thing going on. The main thing here is to notice that God is graciously providing a solution to a problem. You can see the problem there in verses 15 and 16. Um, the people come to me and seek God's will, says Moses. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of all God's decrees and laws. This is the underlying problem. The people are in conflict with one another and there's only one of Moses to bring God's will to bear. Now, the solution that Jethro proposes eases that problem. You know, more people like Moses, more judges. But no number of judges or reams of written code can take away the source of the problem, the the problem of conflict and injustice and human sin. Now, you may think that's an impossible burden to remove. But remarkably, it's not. There is greater grace to come. There's grace here in Exodus 18, but there's greater grace to come in the Bible story in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is speaking like Moses, isn't he? Just as Moses might say, come to me. Jesus says it too, but he's promising and giving something much more. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is uh, the word of the Lord to us this morning, to move on from our grumpiness. And with all of our sin and weakness, it's a burden to us remember what the Lord Jesus has done taking that burden from us and in him in him find peace wisdom reconciliation in your conflicts the strength to face injustice now the hope of perfect justice in the future he is gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls So Christmas is almost upon us and there are therefore multiple opportunities coming up to be grumpy. Uh, I think uh, many of us will suffer in ways we feel we don't deserve to suffer. We may fail to get what we think we do deserve. There are apparently more family arguments on Christmas Day than any other day of the year. Uh, And if uh, Christmas doesn't make us grumpy, there's always the New Year to look forward to. (laughs) February. February in Britain. January's pretty bad, but February. 
the most depressing, miserable, and mediocre month of the year. And it's coming, it's coming soon. But I hope we've seen this morning just what an antidote to grumpiness we can find in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the next week, we're going to be reminded, uh, uh, we're going to be bombarded with reminders about Jesus, aren't we? If we choose to hear them amid all the noise and distraction. But if we do choose to listen, we can be reminded of all that the Lord has done. All that the Lord has done. Breaking into history in Jesus. To deliver us, to rescue us, to save us from the jaws of sin and death. And he is born in his undeserved death. All the sin and injustice which causes and sustains our grumpiness. And in him we can learn. We can learn to live ungrumpy lives in a mad and grumpy world. And uh, may we say together and to one another this Christmas, I do believe it. Well, let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray at this Christmas time especially, that you might bring us to remember all you have done. And uh, most especially to remember all that you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. To remember within that the rescue we don't deserve, but have securely in him. Bring that to mind, we pray. And we ask for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.